This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 716, A Conversation with Kelly Thompson. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is Adam Chapman, your host, and this is episode 716. It's our conversation with Kelly Thompson, or really it's our second conversation. If you want to go back and listen to my first conversation with Kelly, you can check out episode 602, from uh, which was originally posted August 19th, 2018. So it's been about, I guess, what, 14 months? Uh, so it's time to have Kelly back on the show to talk about all the books she worked on in the interim. Uh, it's a great conversation. had a great time talking with Kelly. She's a fantastic guest, has some great stories, great perspective, and uh, she's worked on some really great books. So it's uh, makes it a great interview uh, subject, um, which sounds so clinical now that I say it out loud. You can email me at the show at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump right into the episode with Kelly Thompson. Kelly, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. Absolutely. Well, it's been 14 months, and I feel like it's been a very busy 14 months. Um, is a lot you've done a lot in that period one thing that i think was announced just after our original conversation and so we never actually talked about it uh and now it's obviously passed is uh, you got to write uncanny x-men i did i did with two of my best comics pals uh ed brisson and matt rosenberg so, so what, it was quite quite the experience so what was that experience like because i mean as we've talked about before like a big kind of um thing that got you into comics was the x-men cartoon and then you got to write rogan gambit before but now you're writing uncanny x-men you're writing it as part of a weekly event with two other writers how do you come on board what's the process like um well i when, when i first got brought on board it was not actually going to be called uncanny x-men as i recall um they had sort of shifting plans which everyone who's read um, House of X and Powers of Ten now knows they had a lot of really big things coming on the horizon and so um, I think there was a lot of sort of shifting around as they were trying to figure out what everything was going to be and at some point early on they told us it was going to be, get to be called Uncanny X-Men number one which we were all really excited about mm-hmm. that's sort of a dream come true to get to do that book so um you know we were pretty excited um but you know when they brought us in it was that it was going to be this nine or ten issue weekly book and you know with this certain launch date and that they sort of wanted us to get to place x to set up other things Mm. and um and so that was sort of the directive and then they brought us in uh, not too long after we all signed on, they brought us in for a little mini retreat for us to all sit down together, or summit, I guess they call them, and uh, for us to all sit down together at the same tables and sort of figure it out. It was really, it was really fun. It was really challenging, and at some point early in the process, the directive shifted a little bit because of sort of constantly shifting plans, and so it changed a little bit what we were doing it, what we were doing and how we were approaching it. But it was a, it was a pretty incredible experience all around and, uh, working with Matt and Ed was awesome. 
How did you guys kind of coordinate or how did how do you guys write together? I'm always interested in how writing teams or, you know, two or more people kind of coordinate or how you, you know, kind of adjust and, you know, do the writing chores all together. Like, how does that work? Did one person kind of handle certain things or how did it, how did it kind of shake out? Um, we were pretty confident that we could meld our styles together enough um, so that – sorry, I was adjusting my headphone there um, – so that we could – write just basically divvy up an issue and that we could pretty pretty easily match each other's voices so that it didn't feel jarring to the reader um so um we basically did you know it was great in the bigger issues or the oversized issues where the page breakdown would just break evenly but when it didn't break evenly someone would take seven someone would take seven and then someone would take six and then we just rotated and i think we ended up so that whoever took six was the one who plotted that issue so we worked on the whole framework together we plotted it all out together it was very collaborative and then we basically handed off issues you know, you're plotting this one and writing six pages, and then we would sort of, based on the plot, the, the outline, we would uh, divvy up. The pages actually broke pretty evenly. There were a couple times when it wasn't great where you're like, oh, I have to hand this off in the middle of a fight scene, but okay. <laughs> um, but for the most part, they broke pretty well, and so someone would call dibs on one section or the other, and then uh, you'd end up. I think the only issue where we didn't do that exactly clean was the first issue and that was because I really wanted to write the first three pages not because they were my idea but because I had sort of changed our how we were structuring it a little bit and they were very kind to sort of let me tackle that but then Ed really wanted to write the kids and that scene came right after the opening so I took like the first three and then Ed came in and then I picked up later and then Matt did the end I think so wow but <laughs> it sounds really bad, but it, I mean, it sounds really complicated, but I think Matt and Ed and I, I mean, we talk every day on Slack. We're very close. So it, it just, you know, it just folded into part of our daily conversations hmm. to sort of do the business of that. How how much lead time did you guys have working on that project, given that it was a weekly? And as you said, there was kind of shifting mandates behind the scenes as well. I think I, think I got asked to do it in either late March or early April and then we had our little mini retreat in April so we were pretty locked in on what the idea was going to be um, by late April and then we sort of went into banging out the overall outline which was probably in my opinion the hardest thing we had to do um, that and some retrofitting we had to do later that was pretty tricky um, but yeah so that was so and then that first issue was out in what November November fourteenth I think was the the first issue because it was my brother's birthday I remember that oh, wow um, the one who still follows so, comics or the one who doesn't <laughs> the one who does not I mean he uh. follows me because he's a good brother but he's not <laughs> that involved in comics now uh. um, <laughs> so so yeah so so that sounds like a lot of lead time but keep in mind the first issue was 30 pages not mm. 20 and well it was actually 60 pages because it had those three backups so you know it's a lot of shifting stuff when when that's when that initial run is over like how did i mean how was the decision and maybe we weren't part of the decision or we weren't aware of it but like obviously matt kept writing the book was that ever a conversation about maybe you continue it or that you guys would continue it together or no 
they gave it to Matt. I mean, I think Matt totally deserved it. I think he did an incredible job with it. I also think that the story that they needed Matt to do wouldn't have been a great fit for me. That's not sort of play to my strength. I mean, I like to think I could have done it and would have done a good job, but I could definitely see why Matt's a better fit for that. Uh, just off the cuff and then I was also really overbooked as well at the time I mean I think at the the time that I was doing Uncanny with them we were doing Uncanny I was also I had just started writing Captain Marvel I was still working on Jessica Jones I was still working on West Coast Avengers I was still working on Mr. and Mrs. X and then I had also started working on Sabrina so I was pretty I was pretty tapped I guess the question is also like what what are you most comfortable with in terms of your workload in terms of the amount of books you actually do? I think five is doable, but you don't want to do it forever. That's a lot. Mm. It doesn't leave room for a lot of other stuff. That's certainly how much I like to write in order to make better money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's pretty tough. The biggest problem is, and this is sort of an unseen problem that people who don't write comics, I think, don't realize and it's something that happened to me really badly in 2018 and part of 2019 is that all my books launched at the same time uh, most of them like west coast avengers jessica jones and mr and mrs x all had their issue ones within like a month of each other Mm. and what that meant is that you know because of the way modern comics work you almost always have to do an alternate artist situation, right? Mm. So at the end of an arc, you have to plan for another artist to come in. Well, the best way to do that is to, but, but your other artists, your regular artists, if they're coming back, it's not like they're resting. They're just trying to get ahead again. Mm. So they still need their scripts. So what can end up happening is instead of having to deliver five scripts in a month, if they're all hitting new arcs at the same time, you might end up needing to deliver eight or nine scripts at the same time because all of those books are hitting their transitional period at the same point. And that happened to me really badly in 2018 and 19 because those three books all launched at the same time and it was brutal. (laughs) (laughs) It was, uh, it was really rough. There were some rough seas in there for sure. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I hate admitting this, but I've seen it, so painfully true uh, as a writer and just as a human being in the world sort of the more you have to do the more efficient you are and the more you can get done like Mm -hmm. um, I feel like last summer I was super productive and I was such a machine and you know you could make an argument that I just needed the rest anyway and that if I had had that same schedule this summer I would have I don't know had a breakdown (laughs) but the truth is I wrote very little this summer comparatively and that bums me out I mean maybe I needed the break I'm sure I did but it doesn't feel great looking back at it you're like ah I I wish I'd written a lot more and maybe if I'd had more deadlines to like Mm. freak me out it would have happened you know Interesting. I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, that's generally speaking, it's true of everyone. Like, yeah, if you give you five tasks and or three tasks, like, yeah, I, I will be more efficient about the five because I have to do them all as opposed to yeah, just right? being able to kind of laze around. And people are the same with money. I work in finance and I can see that with people with money is that people who have, you know, more of a, a stricter income are actually better at saving money uh, than people who have yes. more because, you know, th- there's just this amorphous extra blob and it just gets used up. <laughs> Yes, I'm terrible with money, and I totally subscribe to 
subscribe to that, you know, and it's, what is that, that goldfish will fill to fit the size of its tank thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. no matter what, no matter how much I'm bringing in, I somehow have the same amount of extra money. It drives me insane. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When working on X-Men, did you, I mean, we've talked before about you really liked armor and you liked a bunch of other X-Men. Was there anyone in that book that you felt like you finally, this was your moment to finally write that character? Um, I mean, it was, I, I definitely was happy to get a shot at some characters I'd never written before. Um, you know, I'd never gotten to write Storm. I'd never gotten to write Psylocke. I'd never, uh, I mean, like, maybe a line in Mr. and Mrs. X, you know, but like, um, so there were a lot. I mean, there's so many X-Men, right? (laughs) But Jean, Jean and Storm and Psylocke were definitely somewhat over there. I'd written a little bit more of Iceman in Mr. and Mrs. X um, than, um, than maybe some other characters, but I really like Iceman. I'd written Laura, um, Wolverine in um, in uh, Hawkeye, a one issue of Hawkeye, and it was really fun to get back to her. I was glad to get to write armor, um, <laughs> although although Ed was, uh, you know, we knew Ed was doing his book in the Age of X Man thing, and so he knew he'd be writing armor over there. So he very greedily wanted her all the time, and so there were a couple <laughs> times we had to come to fisticuffs over it. Yeah, I usually let him have it, though. <laughs> um, you already kind of answered this question that you were kind of super booked up already. Is that the reason why you didn't end up with an Age of X book or, or an Age of X-Man book? It was It was mostly that. It was mostly that. That's, that's a story that probably no one cares about, but maybe I'll get in trouble for telling, so... I'll just leave it at yes. It was mostly schedule. Okay. That happened there. Um, after you know writing these these issues, was there any X Men who you feel still still eludes you in terms of your must you know write someday list? Well, I was dying to write a, a Quanon book. Um, maybe uh, not not as part of the Age of X Men thing because she was out of that, but. I just, you know, I think that the whole separating of Betsy Braddock and Quanon is a really complicated issue, and I, I have a lot of feelings about it, and I was worried that because there was so much other stuff going on, that the nuances of that, you know, with the with the 10 weekly series and then going into the Age of X-Men and then what they were all setting up for the, the Hickman universe... Um, I was just worried that was really going to get lost as an element. And I wasn't worried about Betsy because that's a long standing character that I knew people were going to care about and come back to, but I was worried Quanon's story was going to sort of get lost. So I actually tried, um, I asked, uh, um, uh, Mariko, why is her last name eluding me all of a sudden? Mariko Tamaki. I asked Mariko Tamaki if she would consider co-writing a Quanon book with me. And I pitched that sort of very vaguely to Jordan um, to, to be going on in the regular universe where the Age of X-Men stuff was doing because I thought maybe we could squeeze it in, but it just didn't work out schedule-wise, so mm. it didn't happen. So she's someone that I'm bummed that I never got to write about. I think I think Mariko and I could have come up with a really great story for her that 
would have helped sort of anchor her in the way that Betsy Braddock has long been anchored, you know? Mm-hmm. But she's got a she's got a pretty primary role in this new Dawn of X stuff. It looks like so. I'm excited to see what they're going to do. Was that? I mean, were you interested in getting back into the X books after having written Uncanny? Like, was Dawn of X something that interested you in trying to kind of be involved? Or uh, yes. I mean, the short answer is I would totally love to write a Dawn of X character, and I have not been asked to do that, and that's fine. Lots of really interesting people are being asked, so you know, I get it, and I also get the feel of wanting to move away from the people who were just doing it before. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like, you got to get sort of a clean break there. For sure. Well, so I have a question, and you don't have to answer this, but um, as someone who's obviously been a fan and is also, you know, still a creator as well, um, you know, after Uncanny ends, you have this relaunch with Hickman, which... You know, people seem to really enjoy, and it's it's getting a lot of good buzz, and it's definitely bringing people kind of hopefully to care more about the X Men than they have in a while. But it also feels like it comes at the expense of Matt's run because it just kind of has a hard stop and kind of doesn't look backwards and just does its own thing. As how do you feel about that kind of happening, where you have you know someone working on a book and developing things and kind of setting up a status quo, but then it just kind of moves on to the next thing and that's kind of pushed aside. Um. layers there on the one hand I think it's really great and I think they have paid a lot of attention and done a really really excellent job um, in addition to everything else those books look fantastic especially those that first House of X and Powers of Ten mm. um, I mean is Pepe Larraz the best artist in all of comics I argue he is mm. um, so I, I think that they, they were very careful. They planned for a long time. They executed it really well. Um, I also think that, and I think I think our kind of uncanny X-Men story, like we delivered very much what we were asked for, and I think it's a good little story. But I think it is the kind of story that really highlights a lot of the stuff that we've seen before. And, and some of that was deliberate because we knew what we were setting up to come next. But one of the best things about House of X and Powers of X is that it feels really different. It feels like a paradigm shift, you know, and it's full of really great science fiction ideas and it's really intellectual and high-minded. And I think it's sort of exactly the change that the X-Men needed to get away from sort of more nostalgia stuff that we've seen before. Because, I mean, you get into this pattern where you're like, okay, what's next? What's bigger and bolder and what's going to, you know, and it, and that can get really repetitive. And so I think that what Hickman's doing is really interesting. Okay. At the same time, you know, especially in that first, for those first four months, it's a focus on a very few number of characters. And it does leave some characters and some stories sort of feeling like they're out in the cold. And it left me out of the X universe, which bums me out on like a personal level. Um, but again, it, like you can't, you don't get anything for free, right? Everything has a cost. And I think the cost of doing this really exciting, desperately needed look at the X-Men that's really different and new and modern, um, you know, something had to be sacrificed. And so some sort of a few months of more characters being around and, and some creators who are interested in those books, like, you know, had to go. And so let's, that's, we were the sacrificial lamb on that altar and that's okay. Hmm. 
Uh, when you mentioned Pepe Larraz being uh, outstanding, um, the fir- I mean, I, I agree with you. And that first issue of House of X, when he had uh, Sabretooth, I'm like, that's the Sabretooth I've been missing since my childhood. Like, <laughs> For he, sure. Because he just sure. looks, he looks so good. And like, my, I had shown the issue to a friend of mine who hadn't read X-Men in a while. He's like, oh my God, that's the Sabretooth I fell in love with. Like, he just looks so fearsome. Yeah. It's funny because I, I agree with you. It looked amazing. But I think my moment for that was in the second issue that LaRoz did, which was that scene with Destiny and Mystique and Moira. And I was like, this is the best Mystique's been written in, I don't know, 20 years. Mm. Like, it was like the most compelling scene, and it was beautifully drawn, that doesn't hurt, um, that, I, that I'd seen, and I would, it, it excited me so much, you know? Oh, for and, sure. And that's that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and it was probably the best that Destiny's ever been, too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like, I, I feel like that character, I mean, I grew up, when I was growing up, like, she was already dead by the time I read, was reading comics. And I would always hear about her, but I never really got to experience her. And I never felt yeah. like she was, she was much more of an interesting character in death than in life. And so here was yeah. really interesting to kind of see her actually speaking and actually being scary. Yeah. She, she, yeah, she always felt sort of, especially because you always see her through characters like Mystique and Rogue, she always feels like this angelic person, right? Who can sort of, oh, Irene, she can sort of do no wrong or whatever. And, but she also sort of felt like a non character because you just sort of know her through rumor and mystery and whatever. But she felt incredibly human in that scene and fascinating and dark. And I just, I was like, can we have a destiny series? Is that a thing? Like, so <laughs> I, I just think the power of, of one scene and me being like, I'm so interested in all three of these characters is, uh, is awesome. Yeah. That's, that's powerful writing. I mean, she basically, you know, tells Pyro to execute Moira. Like that's, that's powerful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's intense. It's intense. Not it's a great. It's a great bit. <laughs> um, moving on from X Men related stuff, um, around the, when we first talked, I think only the first uh, issue of your Jessica Jones had come out, and obviously a lot more has come out since then. Um, absolutely incredible series, loved it. Everything with the purple daughter is creepy, and but like divert, deservedly so. Um, what was it like being able to write Jessica Jones? I mean, we talked about it before when you were kind of doing the first issue or, or so, but you know, now that you got to write this much of her, when did we get more of that? <laughs> I wish, I wish we had, there was more greenlit. Um, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Jessica Jones is one of my favorite characters, and I was so sort of like honored and terrified to be asked to continue that story. Uh, I'm really proud of what we did in large part. Um, you know, Madia is was an amazing collaborator, especially on Purple Daughter. You know, I spoke to him. When, when I had plotted that, and even when I had written the first script, or I was writing the first script, you know, I came to him and I said, i got to ask you if you're up for this. I think you're amazing, but basically I need to underwrite this, and it's going to leave a lot of it on your shoulders. And, like, I know you can do it, but are you up for it? Are you, do you want to do it with me? And he was like, absolutely. And he just nailed it. I mean, he brought so much emotion and nuance to it that – in the hands of a lesser artist, I mean, I just don't think my scripts would have worked at all because of the approach I took, which, you know, it's like Jessica's a great character. You want to be in her head. She's got a great voice. She's got this sort of sarcastic thing, but she's not like a Kate Bishop, like a quippy. I mean, she's got her 
mean, sort of sarcastic, hard-edged commentary, but it's not like she's a she's a far more laconic character than someone like Kate Bishop, for example. It's sort of the same way I would say a Black Widow character. Like I sort of hate seeing Black Widow being written as like a quippy character. This is not who she is. She's like, she's like a deadly serious spy. Not that she can't have a sense of humor or that she can't you know engage us with her voice, but you know it's just those voices like just a slight tweak is so important and um for jessica to be going through what she was going through i felt you know she's going to be even less sort of quippy and sarcastic and you know making her comments that she does because she's going through an absolute emotional hell and i just needed to know maddie could deliver on that and man did he deliver yeah breathtaking artwork like i mean it's interesting because it's such a different visual style than uh, obviously the you know the original artist on uh, the Alias books, but it still works. And it's interesting that the character can survive such a big tonal shift because artistically they couldn't be you know more different. They're very different, but I would say they're both not very comic booky, which mm. I think is good. Um, and I think one of the things that helped Mattias is the TV show existing because I felt like we were a really like, I feel like people who don't read comics a lot but might be interested in them, that's a really good look for a book if you're used to a TV show, right? Because mm. it's really highly rendered, it's highly realized, it's very realistic looking, it's very lush, the storytelling is very clear, there's not a lot of craziness, you know? Um, and I feel like that was something that helped, so. That's true. Actually, I guess it's also, I mean, not that uh, you've worked with, um, oh my God. Marco Cicchetto is kind of that same style where it's it's very different. It's not as comic booky because of how it's rendered. Yeah, yeah. Mar- Marco Cicchetto, uh, he he would definitely be a, a good example too. He would have been great on. I mean, he'd be great on anything. But yeah, we had him for Phasma, and I think that's another example of he's someone who's a great fit for anyone who's maybe not a comic book reader who might be interested because it's a really high level uh, of art that's that's really realized and, and pretty realistic looking which you know I, that's not to say that style is better but I just I'm very interested in tone and arts art fitting the style of a book mm-hmm. and uh, Mattia turned out to be just a godsend in that regard now last year when we talked you were you're prepping for West Coast Avengers which I guess unfortunately didn't make it I guess past a year but it was such a fantastic book thank you thank you I loved it I loved it it was definitely painful when I knew we weren't going to make it um especially the first half um with Stefano who was just a complete joy to work with uh he and Triona just were such an incredible team uh just really encapsulating and uh, what that what that was about what we were doing with the sort of TV confessional stuff mm-hmm. uh, you know they just really got it and it really sent us on its way and then Daniel DiNocolo uh, he did a great job um, as well I worked with him briefly on Power Rangers and he's a super talent um, so yeah it was it was heartbreaking sort of didn't get to do the stuff I wanted to do I think particularly stuff I wanted to do with Kate obviously but I think the biggest loss was actually the Gwenpool uh, stuff mm. that we were sort of developing with Gwen Poole and uh, Quentin Choir. So that was a bummer. Um, how much fun is it to write Quentin Choir? I mean, 
he's great. He's great. <laughs> I mean, the t-shirts alone was like such a good time. <laughs> now, do you come up with the, t- the t-shirts or how does that like kind of materialize did, in the page? I did. I did come up with the t-shirts. I can't remember who came up with the greatest thing though, which was that I had forgotten to write him a t-shirt in the first issue and Stefano had already turned in the pages and he was in the sweater vest. And I was like, Oh man, we really need the t-shirt. And I, maybe it was Alana who came up with it. She was like, well, why don't we just have it like knitted on there? Like, and I was like, Oh my God, that's great. I was like, yes, please (laughs) put the saying right on the sweater vest. It's amazing. So he was just as much of a joy as you would have expected him to be. Yes, yes. I mean, I guess it's nice to have a character who can kind of, kind of say anything you need him to, like, and it doesn't really feel wrong. Like, it just feels. Yeah, right. no, he's. I mean, truth teller characters are great. Like characters that like don't play nice. Like you really need that element. Like I always feel like people when they're when they're fan casting books, they always want to put similar characters together. They're like, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so. I'm like, that's exactly the wrong way to do it. Like, I mean, sure, put a few of those together, but you really need the oil that goes with the water. You, if you get all water or all oil, it's not, you don't get that sort of magical mix. I mean, it's like going back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's like, you know, when Cordelia left, they had a problem. Like everybody was friends. Everybody knew each other. Enter Spike. Okay, now we have a problem character who's getting in the way of everyone just sort of getting along. You know, Anya worked really well at times in that capacity. That's really some of the magic to uh, to to casting a book is is finding that. Um, but the but the real fun for me with Quentin came out of how he sort of took me by surprise as the writer as that Gwen development started to happen it really softened him and it gave him a sort of side I haven't really seen before in that character um, where it really humanized him and I could see him like trying to be a good person because he was genuinely concerned about this other person and mm. I really liked it I mean I think I think the bones of all of that was very much was very well set up by Christina Strain in her Generation X series and I really wanted to pick up on that hmm. um, I mean Gwenpool's obviously still around she's in another miniseries right now what about writing her was challenging and what about it was was just a joy because I mean it's a very particular character who doesn't really have any other equivalent in the Marvel Universe in her specific way yeah she's really tough um, I think that she was by far the thing I was the most concerned about um, she also ended up being one of my favorite things which is often how it goes um, I think that the problems for Gwenpool for me is that first of all Christopher Hastings wrote an incredible book mm-hmm. and it's really hard to follow up on a book like that like he did like a lot of really groundbreaking stuff in there and so it's hard to just like throw her into a team book and be like hey here she is now <laughs> like you really <laughs> want to say something you know you really want to say something with the character you want to have a purpose beyond let's throw her in a team book just so she can be in a book and um Although, so theoretically, that really, that's all the character would want, is to be in right. a team book, because she's still around. <laughs> well, that's not what, all that I want, though. <laughs> um, and so, that was that was important to me, and for a long time, I sort of couldn't figure it out, like, how she fit in the team book. And I remember my editor even showed me a couple places where Gwenpool popped up in other books to, like, show me ways to do it, and I hated everything she showed me. Oh. And I was like, those are terrible examples. 
don't give them to me. Now I don't think it works at all because, you know, she doesn't. So that was really part of the key of unlocking it for me was that her narrative, even though Hastings left it open really beautifully for her story to continue, which was very generous of him as a creator. um, Her narrative gets messed up when she's not the star, because what what happens then? Mm. Like, if you're a character who's affecting all these other people and you're controlling their lives, like, I mean, that's that's like a whole other level. And so that became our our sort of concept of if she's not the star, she doesn't have that same kind of power. And those sort of ideas are where we were going exploring that. Like she, when she wasn't in control of the narrative, she didn't have that same level of narrative control. And... Um, so that was some of the stuff we were playing with that I was really excited about, and I would have loved to explore it further, but alas. <laughs> was she a character who you asked for in West Coast, or is it a character that was kind of said, oh, you should include her? She was definitely sort of foisted on me. Okay. <laughs> and I was very resistant to it initially, but again, to my peril. Like, I was resistant to it because I couldn't immediately see how it worked. And I was afraid of it, and it was difficult. But, you know, usually you shouldn't run from things that are difficult. You should figure them out. And that's what we ended up doing, and I was so, so glad. And and I think that's a really great example of a great editorial, you know, how that collaboration should work. Because we went back and forth forever on West Coast Avengers to the point where I thought they were going to pull me off the book because we were sort of not seeing eye to eye. And it was actually after the summit, um, I guess it was like the May before that book got announced or that book got released or whatever, um, that we finally sat down, Tom and Alana and I, and like had a better conversation about like how they saw it. And I was like, oh, I was like, okay. I was like, I was missing this part of it. Hmm. But now I understand what you're looking at. Here's what I'm interested in. Here's maybe where they could meet in the middle. And they were like, yes. And like we were finally sort of on the same page. And I was like, oh, good. Maybe I'm not going to get thrown off this book. (laughs) Um, So it ended up working out really well. But it was definitely, it's, it's, I think it's a great example to me of that was one of the hardest books for me to figure out. And that's a first issue that I'm maybe the most proud of. Hmm. Um, maybe Hawkeye won instead, but that's not as good a story because Hawkeye won, which is really easy. I mean, we talked about it for a long time and we worked on it for a long time, but everyone, there was not a lot of back and forth. There was not a lot of controversy. It was just, we developed it for a long time hmm. um, because we had that time because of the timing um west coast avengers we did not have that time and there was all this back and forth and there was a lot of sort of arguing and yet i'm so pleased with that final result now this year you got to launch a new captain marvel book and it couldn't have been kind of at a kind of a bigger time for the character obviously because you have a movie coming out and then you're launching a new book what was like to get the reins of that character it was really really exciting i mean i don't want to pretend that it wasn't like the perfect timing to be able to get that book. I was so happy and honored that they let me take the reins at that time. Um, But some of it was also just that, you know, I had wanted 
to get my hands on Captain Marvel for a while, but I also knew that they really wanted to tell space stories with her. Mm. And I'm not opposed to that. She's obviously a cosmic character, and she deserves and should have those space stories. Plus, she's a pilot. She should be in the air. It's a thing. <laughs> but I I just I felt like she'd been out in space for a really long time, and I felt she was really disconnected from sort of the stuff that was going on on Earth, and, and more even more importantly than that, from, like, the people she was helping. Like, there are lots of stories in these times when she's been in space where you see her connect with other aliens and like, you know, the stories do all the things they're supposed to do. But I just felt like there was this sort of heart that was getting lost a little bit. And I really wanted to reconnect her with like the people of earth and her sort of boots on the ground a little bit. And so I knew, but, but they were really interested in continuing the space stuff, which I get like all the alpha flight stuff was so cool. And, you know, they gave her all these new roles and, and she got such a larger platform as a cosmic character that, you know, I didn't want to try and elbow my way in there. But then when this came out, it looked like there was an opportunity to do a bit of both. And so I grabbed it. Now, when you have your first arc, and it's again, it's 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 a cool kind of fun story. When you have her teaming up with all these characters, how did you decide on which characters that were going to kind of be part of uh, that kind of squad fighting the resistance, basically? Um, well, we hit on pretty early on that because of the sort of historical roots of Nuclear Man being this sort of horrible, misogynistic asshole that. <laughs> It would make sense that he doesn't want any men coming in there, but that he doesn't see women as a threat and he wants women there. So he's happy to let women come through his barrier. And so that gave us this really fun opportunity to just do a sort of an all girls squad in a sort of organic way. Um, I knew I wanted Jessica there because uh, I wanted to reconnect Carol with her best friend that she'd been sort of absent from. I really wanted Hazmat because I wanted someone young and Hazmat is a great to me a sort of salty truth teller type of character who doesn't necessarily fit i mean jessica and carol have a really magic sort of um repartee with each other that i love but they super get along i mean they're not afraid to like disagree but you know there's not a lot of conflict there but hazmat's a character she's new she's not really in there um i wanted to use echo because i think it's a really she's a really terrific underused character i wish i'd had more time to do more with her um that's one of my big regrets of that first arc uh rogue i knew we were going to use because i had this idea that tied into the island that i wanted to use and because i sort of love that relationship with carol and rogue and i think sometimes it's handled well in comics and sometimes it's been bungled and so just even just as a fan like i wanted to go in and it was sort of like a dream to write some of those scenes to sort of have them have conversations i've always wanted them to have Hmm. um so that was sort of a dream come true and then she hulk i probably shouldn't have fit she hulk in because we were so crowded but i love she hulk so much and uh it was a real it was a real dream to fit her in there and i loved the role we found for her i just wish we'd have more time for everything i mean that's always the problem in comics mm-hmm. in in the current arc i do i loved you using uh, uh she hulk as basically like a, a walking punching bag for captain marvel to like <laughs> put to work out aggression i thought that was extremely well done and very funny like <laughs> thank you thank you i mean that's one of those happy accidents where you're writing it and you're cursing yourself that you don't have more pages because I really wanted that scene to be like three pages but then Carmen did it so well I mean I asked her for a grid or like a a bunch of tiny little panels sort of Mm -hmm. almost like a 
Javier Polito kind of thing, like a crazy thing. And then she just did it as a straight grid, and it turned out so great. I loved it. I mean, I guess it's a bit of a cheat. You, you get to use it again when you have Tony Stark watching the, the footage, right? So, Yeah, I mean, that was – like, those are those little things that I really love as a writer where I'm like, we're not going to – like, yes, this is about Carol having something to punch – but really, it's going to be revealed that it's about Jessica tricking Carol into punching something so she can get video footage of her. Like, I love little bits like that. So, And that was really smart because I honestly did not see – like, I didn't even think about that. And then I'm like, well, obviously that makes sense. Like, she set it up for a reason. Yeah, yeah. She's Jessica con- is definitely – the P.I. in her is definitely, like, one step ahead of Carol. <laughs> Now the current arc. Now I know that the uh, the star character is going to be getting their own miniseries soon. Um, what was like? What was that kind of pitching process like? Or what, when did that even come about? Or like, because you're kind of midway through this storyline. Like, when did that kind of get greenlit, and how does that work? It happened really fast, and it was Marvel just sort of asking me to do it to seize on the opportunities that were happening. Like, Star had a lot of really great word of mouth. There's a thing that comes out tomorrow. When will this podcast come out? It might come out right. Like it might come out in a couple hours. Okay, then I can't tell you. Okay, but there's a there's a big reveal still being held for Captain Marvel number eleven that relates to Star, and when you see that, it's going to make a lot of sense why we might have a mini series about it, um, and so that and Marvel knowing that which had been planned for a long time and they've been sort of in on that that added to this crazy sort of excitement we were seeing over the character and over this story arc where we've gone into these huge third printings and things um, I, mean, I think issue 8 went into a third or fourth printing but more importantly than that you know a lot of times when you get a second printing it's like oh 5,000 or whatever but like I think the second printing for issue eight was like twenty or twenty five thousand. Like wow. that's a huge, that's a huge second printing for something like Captain Marvel that does, eh, okay numbers. I mean, we're rebounding, which is amazing. Like our numbers have bounced back really incredibly. But like, you always want your numbers to be higher than they are, and to get a second printing for an issue eight that's like twenty thousand, that's incredible. So Marvel was really excited by what they were seeing as excitement for the book and like buzz around this character and so them knowing what was coming and then being excited about what they were seeing for star and of course the incredible design work carmen carnero did she's like such a visually cool looking character Mm. um they just they were like we think we should do this miniseries they're like so you better come up with uh, the story and i was like okay (laughs) (laughs) i mean i knew i knew the broad strokes um because of the stuff that's going to happen in 11 that people are going to see so like i knew where we needed to get but you know how you're going to tell that how you're going to execute it how you're going to make it like a worthy of five issues story like that's a whole other uh it's horse of a different color as they say in the olden days. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be cool. I also think a lot of people, both people who are reading and people who are just sort of speculating and hearing about the character, I think there's a lot of sort of misinformation about... Uh, I mean, I don't want... like. I was seeing people calling her a hero and they're like, oh, and she's going to become a hero. And I'm like, well, is she though? I mean, she's trying to kill Captain Marvel and (laughs) the people of New York City. Like, I think it's a little premature to be like, oh, she's a hero and we're going to get a redemption arc. Like, or 
she's like Lex Luthor. We don't know. Like, I mean, I, I think that that's too soon. I think that that's part of what we're going to be exploring. Like, who is she? What a threat is she? Is she not a threat? Like, what is this going to be? So it's exciting. How is it to write her as a protagonist? A little tricky, honestly, um, because, you know, I've developed her to a certain point, but only really as far as I needed and had time for. And there's definitely something about when you start writing that character that, like, a lot of stuff sort of breaks open for you. Mm. Um, On page one of the first issue, I wrote this joke for her, and I was like, oh, she's a little bit funny. I was like, I didn't, I don't think I knew that until she sort of did that. And um, it really helped a lot as far as me getting a handle on her voice and what it should be and how we should push her. So how, um, like when you're right, like in the current arc, obviously like you have the sense that everything's kind of been building to this star story, even if we didn't know it, Um, the kind of things in the background, was that all part of your kind of initial pitch for the series or like how far in advance do you kind of, generally plot out where you want the book to go well i think i don't plot out far enough usually it worked really well in our favor uh, although deadpool's an exception i will say um it worked out really well in our favor on captain marvel because of shenanigans last summer where so this arc that we're finishing up tomorrow that i originally pitched as our first arc oh and i mean we obviously would have done it a little differently but that would have been issue one through four or five, depending on how we rolled it out. And then the powers that be uh, decided. I mean, I don't. I don't really know. I, I think enough changed that their note that they gave us a year ago or over a year ago doesn't make as much sense now, but. Basically, they really liked the story, but they just weren't sure they wanted it to be the first story. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up coming up with the um, with the uh, Nuclear Man story, and then we had the tie-in for War of Realms, and then and then we sort of backed into Falling Star. And because of that, we end up looking smarter because Ripley's there from issue one, even though she doesn't become a bigger player until eight and you don't really learn who she is until either the end of nine or 10. I can't remember now. So we ended up looking smarter than we are, or I ended up looking <laughs> smarter than I am. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm normally not as good as that, as a, as on, on my plotting. I'd like to be, I endeavor to be um, sometimes like in the case of Deadpool, you get better at that through no <laughs> through no making of your own, but just because you have to go through so much revision and process to get it right, and you end up throwing out a lot of ideas and laying a lot of stuff down. I mean, Deadpool were plotted through, gosh, a long... We've got story for miles, <laughs> and a lot of that's because we had a really long process of, of developing what we wanted it to be and what our sort of big thematic beats were going to be, so... So how did they, how did they come to you with Deadpool? Or did you pitch Deadpool? Like how did that's you know that's a, obviously a very visible character. It's a big one. Uh, people really love Deadpool, and it's a very specific voice. But you, I mean, you've shown your aptitude for being able to uh, deliver humor very well. So obviously that kind of makes sense that you'd be able to do a Deadpool character. But who kind of who kind of asked who first? Uh, they asked me to do it, but I think they knew I was interested. 
both because they know I really like comedy books, um, and also because I had written him in Mr. and Mrs. X 2 and 3, I think, and I think that there's, um, you know, I think Marvel is savvy enough to know that sometimes when you write a character into a book, it's because you're interested in them and, like, you'd like to try your hand at that character, and so... um, I guess they liked how I approached him there and they felt I'd be a good fit. And yeah. And so I had a pocket opening up because I just had a bunch of books were in the process of closing up. And so Jake Thomas uh, came to me, told me they were interested. And I was like, I'm super interested. I was like, however, (laughs) I, you got to give me a minute to look at it and really think about it because I don't want to do it unless I think I have something to say because I just think Deadpool, you have to be really careful. Like it's very easy to fall into, he's all about jokes, but like the jokes are a shield for the pain. So unless you've got something to say with the character, I feel like it ends up becoming very, very shallow. And so I, you know, that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I had to really, and the other, the biggest problem with, Deadpool is that he's been in five bazillion stories and so he's done everything and it's really hard to come up with a story that feels really unique and different and that he hasn't already done and so I really had to sit back and um, and look at it and the timing wasn't great because the timing for writing the book was going to be great but like I was still wrapping a lot of stuff up mm. while they wanted me to pitch the book and so it was a little tricky but we got there when you're writing a character like that, and given, again, that there have been so many stories, plus there's been movies, like, what what voice do you hear when you hear Deadpool? Like, do you think of Ryan Reynolds? Do you think of, you know, the different animated incarnations of the character? Or do you just kind of think of, like, the Joe Kelly versions of the character? Like, which of the versions kind of stick out when you're writing the character? Or is it just purely you? Um, I mean, it's definitely not me. I mean, I always hope that I'm bringing something unique to a character that not just anybody could bring. Otherwise, why am I there? Like, why am I important to that process? So I always hope I'm bringing something. But Deadpool is a character, you know, he's been written so much, and there's such, like, a specific voice there. I do think you really have to tap into that specifically. Um, The good news is I think Brian Reynolds is not only great, but those Deadpool movies feel like Deadpool like they're a very good translation to film of of that character voice at least um and sort of the concepts and the and the general like approach um I think that I read I mean I've read a lot of Deadpool over the years and then when I was researching I went back and read a lot more and reread um I do think that Jerry Dugan's stuff really stands out because Mm. I think not only does he have such a like um I don't even know what the word is. Um, is it a record-breaking run on Deadpool? Probably. Um, so many issues. Um, but, you know, he's definitely a writer that always writes from emotion, from with char- really getting into the character's emotional center. And he writes a very funny Deadpool, but he is definitely of the school that, like, let's draw from pain. Like why is Deadpool funny? He's hiding pain. He's covering it up. He's trying to survive. Like he's very into all of that, which is the same for me. So Hmm. I think, I think Jerry stands out as being 
one of the one of the runs and one of the voices that I sort of like sort of default to the most when I when I think of the weight I want to be but you know I also hope we're gonna sort of stand on our own a little bit at what point in the process like either when pitching or when you're starting to write your scripts did you know who the artist was going to be I wanted Chris from like day one I didn't know if that would happen I mean he's incredibly hard to get and you know he can he has his pick of whatever he wants and even though Chris and I have sort of vaguely known each other for years, I mean, I've been a fan of him since I was a teenager, and he, you know, we've talked a little bit here and there, I I was very much like, he's not going to want to do it with me, I'm nobody compared to Chris, so, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I didn't know if that was going to be a go, and honestly, I don't think it was a go until I was at the summit um, pitching, and to the room telling them about what this Deadpool was going to be. So we already had the idea. I was doing the book and you're sort of throwing it out to the room um, to see if people have things to add to it, to see if they hate it, you know, whatever, to see what the response is. And it killed in the room. Oh, yeah? And, yeah, it killed. Um, I, I'm not good at that many things, but I'm pretty good in that room. Like, I can be, like, charming and do my little pitch and whatever. And so me sort of turning it on plus all these really great ideas that we had um, and all this work that we'd done to develop it, which was a lot at that point. Um, you know, it just clicked. And we came out of there, and my editor was like, uh, I think we just helped our case for getting Chris because that went over like gangbusters. <laughs> and so that was part of how I think we ended up getting Marvel to really, like, put their their shoulder into, let's see if we can get Chris to do this. And um, so, yeah. But, you know, Chris is an incredibly detailed artist, so there will definitely be alternate, um, either standalone or shorter arc artists in between, and we'll keep him for as long as he's happy doing it, you know? Um, for sure. Now, I know we have to let you go, but one last question. Okay, um, we, can, we can go a little bit longer if you like. I'm having a great time. You ask very good questions. Sometimes I say an hour because I get traumatized by <laughs> not so great questions, but we're having a very nice time. I'm happy to stay on a little longer if you want. Okay, so I have questions about something that I have to admit I haven't read yet, so I apologize in advance. That's okay. Um, so uh, what has it been like working on a character like Sabrina? It's been so great. I... You know, one of the funny things with Sabrina was that Archie Comics, I always talk about X-Men Comics being my entry into comics because of the animated show, and then the X-Men Comics were the first comics I read, and it's true that they were my entrance into monthly comics and going to the comic book store and, like, becoming an obsessive comic book reader, but the truth is Archie Digest were my real interest in entrance into comic books because I would beg my mom for them at the grocery store. And so my my introduction to Archie and Betty and Veronica and Sabrina was very early, and I love all that stuff. And Sabrina, you know, even though I'm a diehard for Betty and Veronica, like Sabrina has like an autonomy and a power that Betty and Veronica didn't have. Like all Betty and Veronica stories revolved around Archie, and Sabrina wasn't like that. She had power. She had her own narrative. Um, and so even when, when you're a kid, like, you're not aware that that's what you're responding to. But in retrospect, it seems very obvious. You're like, oh, of course I was interested in that. Like, it was more interesting, you know? Um, 
And so Sabrina was like, I don't know, it's like a really big honor to get to lend my voice and ideas to this sort of long and storied history of Sabrina, who's a really bendy character. She seems nothing like Deadpool, but the fact is she's had a lot of really different incantations and they all sort of work as long as you can sort of find that Sabrina, that quintessential Sabrina voice. As long as you can find that, I think you're sort of golden and you can put her in all sorts of scenarios. Um, But to be honest, when that book really started to click for me, was Veronica and Andy Fish's work. It's so beautiful. Um, mm. If you haven't seen it yet, you should really check it out. It's They're really doing a lot of really fun stuff that is really character forward and storytelling forward. It's really sort of lush and beautiful, and it's sort of light and fun but with just a little bit of edge. And our second volume is going to be a little bit edgier. Um, it was really, we had, we had such a great time. And, you know, I, I was familiar with their work, and I knew they'd be great. But I just we just really clicked, and I just think it's the best work they've ever done. To be honest, like I just think it's incredible. How much la- like latitude do you get from Archie to kind of because obviously it is a legacy character; it's been around a long time to kind of play around and, and make changes and do things. Well, Archie is very liberal in that way. I mean, I think you can see that by looking at the line. They've got mm-hmm. like you know they had a they have slash had the Sabrina Chilling Adventures, which is extremely dark. Like the witches, her aunts are cannibals and shit. Like it's very dark. And then you've got like the, you've got the horror stuff with the Jughead. They've got this Jughead time police thing. So Archie is very open, I think, to different takes and to pushing different into different genres and different ideas. And I think part of that comes from just the confidence of knowing those characters have been around and sort of unchanged for so long that like in a modern context, you can push them into different directions and it works. I mean, for example, something that sort of shouldn't work, but we're just like, whatever is that Sabrina is currently starring in the main Archie line and she's like dating Archie, but that narrative doesn't line up with ours at all. I mean, they're just totally separate things. And, and was, I think, they never asked you to like, kind of make that stuff work or is it just kind of, it's all just they, different we, Archie comics. Yeah, we briefly talked about it, like, oh, should we try to tie these together? And then we quickly decided it wasn't going to serve either book. And I just think that's really smart, because I understand why comic fans love continuity and these ongoing stories. I understand why they're interested in that. And I would say that there was a time when I felt the same way. But the quickest way to break you of that is to realize you get better stories if you loosen your grip on that. Like, if you just let creators and publishers like work on making the best possible story that maybe doesn't fit into this box you just get more interesting stuff and i think it's borne out across the board i mean what's one of the best things that marvel has ever done in my opinion is uh next wave agents of hate which does not fit in any sort of continuity box and they look for a long time they were like it's out of continuity we don't know how it fits and it's like why even bother none of it fits Cyclops should be a hundred years old, but he's like twenty-five instead. Like, just let it go. Like, just let the great stories be told. And I think Archie's really good at that. And uh, I think there were a lot of notes on my first issue, and then very few going forward. Like, they saw that I got it. They saw that people got it. The readers got it, and were excited about it. And so then they just sort of let us go. It was great. It does feel like a character like Archie probably lends him, like well, the Archie world, I mean, kind of lends itself to more of that because, as you said, they've been around forever, but 
every story just kind of took place but didn't need to fit within an established continuity um yeah. a book that like so when last year i guess was it earlier this year when when marvel announced they were bringing back conan i never really read conan yeah. before and i'm like all right i'll pick up you know conan and savage sword and they're just kind of stories are just happening and it's all within this this life that probably couldn't encompass every story that you're going to get but it doesn't matter because it's all just about conan as long as conan makes sense and he's consistent then it doesn't matter if the world he you know if he has all these crazy adventures that if you plotted it out maybe he couldn't actually do them all but who cares yeah exactly exactly but maybe it's just something about some of those characters that have never lived within a defined continuity that's easier to kind of do that whereas as you said, like the fact that Next Wave was good, people loved it, but also, pe- you know, the people who kind of grew up in the Mark Gruenwald school of continuity were like, "Well, how does this fit?" Yeah, yeah, and that's hard to shake. I mean, and and that really, to me, goes back to like when I was talking about the quintessential Sabrina voice, and I think you can apply that to Deadpool. You can apply it to any number of characters, so long as you can find that voice that feels right. And that's a tough thing to talk about, even because fans certainly don't agree you know that's a thing you see all the time fans complaining about oh this character's out of character right Mm. um so it's obviously a salt to taste thing it's a very difficult thing to do excuse me but if you can find that sweet spot you know there's a lot of things you can do with a lot of characters if you can just nail that voice so that a reader feels like oh yeah this is sabrina and this is sabrina if this you know this is sabrina in a horror environment this is sabrina in a high school environment this is sabrina in a romance book this is sabrina in a buffy kind of story where she's juggling high school and horrors you know which is what our book is (laughs) (laughs) the last question i'll ask you is so this year i guess in the last year and a half or so uh, marvel started uh putting out these collections of their books where and for some reason, they haven't defined it as being part of a specific line, which only drives me crazy because I like knowing which books are in this line. But the, the, <laughs> the slightly, slightly smaller trade dress where it's not digest size, it's t- bigger than that, but it's smaller than uh, the typical trades. And they're extremely budget-oriented. They're very, like, I think they're like twelve ninety nine or such. And this year, your Hawkeye Got series got put into that format. Um, and which I think would allow it to have you know more bookstore access, etc. How do you feel about your book being part of this new kind of nascent line, which is you know very again cost effective and about getting these new readers in, and that your book is one of the ones chosen for that? I love it. I love getting as many people to read Kate Bishop as possible, um, and I think that especially thanks to Leo and Jordy's incredible artwork. Um, it translated really well to that smaller size, which I don't think is always true necessarily, but it worked really well for our book. Um, and if it gets more kids reading comics, I'm always into it. I mean, my only concern about it is that the best possible page for a regular size floppy book is maybe not the best possible page for that size book. Mm. And so with something where you know it's going to be in both those formats or where it's intended to be in both those formats, like how do you serve both those masters correctly? Mm -hmm. Um, I have a little bit of concern about that, but I think it's really, I think the the benefits far outweigh that one concern. Mm -hmm. I think the things it can bring for comics can far outweigh that one thing. I also think that, um, 
while this seems really great, unlike this other thing I'm going to <laughs> suggest, um, uh, so I don't want to imply that this isn't working, but I just want to say that innovation in comics is really important, and I think there have been long stretches where people stop trying to innovate other than content, right? Hmm. Um, and that's to our detriment. Like, the only constant is change, so you got to adjust to that changing market. And so the thing I'm going to say that hasn't worked that well is like the Jessica Jones doing that as a digital only. Mm. I think it's important that they try that. Um, I wasn't wild to be sort of the first book doing that, although they ended up doing Cloak and Dagger that way and they sort of got there first. But I think we were the first ones that were like planned to be that way from the beginning. And we were sort of the higher profile one at the time. And like that big San Diego Comic-Con announcement where they dropped all 40 pages of it just that day. Like, but the first guy through the wall is bloody and it didn't super work. It worked a little bit. Like people loved the book, but like you can go on to, you know, like um, those sites that aggregate reviews and some issues of Jessica Jones don't have any reviews. And it's just because it's not the way we're trained to think of things. So, like, mm. there are successes in that, but there are also failures in that. And I think the important lesson to learn from the digital thing is we got to keep trying to find, like, what the right mix is. Um, and I think that that, again, is a flawed comparison because I think these new size, I don't know what they're calling them, digest size, whatever they are. They're bigger than Digest, though, so I don't know what the name will be. I think that's working really well. But yeah. that's just an example of, like, keep innovating, keep trying. Like, we can't get asleep. We can't be asleep at the wheel with this stuff, you know? Mm. Comics is sort of too fragile but interesting a medium to, like, sleep on it. And especially when you see what's happening with graphic novels, like Marvel and DC and all of us monthly Wednesday warrior types, quote unquote, should, should be a part of that. Like that's a huge growth industry. Mm-hmm. And um, why wouldn't all those characters be a part of that? It's great. It's interesting when you mentioned that, again, the idea of, you know, more innovation. I mean, I don't know where the Marvel infinite comics went, but those were really interesting, like at their best. I mean, I remember during AVX, there was one chapter of it that I thought was so thrilling and it would not have been the same in the print comic. Uh, there's just something yeah. about the pacing and, and the felt that it felt like I was watching a movie because it was again the fact that you had like the the word balloons kind of moving and changing like you it was moving you along the story but in a way that I thought amped up the tension and it made me want to go faster and again it made it feel more animated and I don't know where those went. Is this like the motion comics thing? Uh, no, no. Um, Marvel in, there was they were called were they called Infinite Comics? Oh, now I'm now I'm, I'm horribly maybe they, maybe I'm calling no, it the that, wrong thing. No, maybe that that's right. I, I think that's right. I think you're right. I think because around and, a- AVX they did one. Uh, there was a yes, bunch during yes, those, yes. and I think then they did um, uh, Deadpool and Cable one that I think the CS wrote Split Second, mm-hmm. I think, or something like that. Where mm-hmm. again, like it was, you would read it, and it wasn't just like guided view or anything. It was actually changing the panels, uh, or you'd have dialogue right. boxes fade in and then fade out. As opposed right. to if you just had a printed comic, it would just all be there. So it was structured a little bit differently from a reading experience. And like when you would download it, it would look like you know, on your on your device, it looked like you had like you know a hundred pages, but it was because each one was like a different box. Um, interesting. It was a really interesting yeah. idea and a cool innovation. And I, again, maybe people just weren't picking it up because maybe they didn't see it there. Or who knows? But I thought it was just a cool concept. Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's first guy through the wall is bloody. Like maybe it didn't quite work 
there, people weren't quite getting it, but that doesn't mean that some version of that isn't going to be a hit, like when you keep trying, you know? Mm-hmm. I still yeah. remember uh, Comics on the Web, Cow by CrossGen. Because um, that was a big innovation back in, like, what, 2001? Because they were, like, trying to put their comics online. And instead of having being kind of a, a digital thing where you'd done on Marvel.com, I think, in, like, 99 or something, but that was a little bit different, you had their actual comics, but they were, again, kind of uh, what we would know as guided view now from Comixology. But you kind of saw that in their, you know, kind of development. I don't know if you ever read any cross-gen work, but there was a whole comics on the web kind of idea, which now seems you know, that's exactly what we're getting. But at the time was so right. such a far ahead of where anyone was at the time. Right. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, um, we'll wrap this up, but, uh, so obviously you're, you're writing Sabrina, you're writing, uh, the upcoming star book, you're writing Captain Marvel. Is there anything else that you can talk to us about, about that's coming up or kind of hint at? Well, don't forget Deadpool. Oh, Deadpool. That's of course. My, that's oh my, my God. Really big thing. That that's starts right. next month. So Captain Marvel tomorrow, the 16th, is the last issue of the Falling Star arc, and then we go into The Last Avenger, which is a big, very exciting story that I think is a very different story for a Captain Marvel book. Like, maybe not too different of a Carol story, but different to see in the pages of Captain Marvel, and that first issue especially is... I've never seen a Captain Marvel book quite like that, so I'm really excited about it. Um... It's going to freak a lot of people out, but I hope they trust me. Um, and then we've got – so then Deadpool is next month. Uh, Sabrina Volume 2 – Sabrina has wrapped, and Sabrina Volume 2 will be out in winter, spring of 2020, I believe. We'll okay. start again. Um, Star starts in January, and then I have a new thing that I can't talk about yet because it's too early. But okay. I think that that will be in um, late winter, early spring. Okay, um, so, and that's a that's a Marvel thing. So that won't be announced like tomorrow because that's how I felt last time when we talked. <laughs> and like the next day, I was like, "Oh, she's doing X Men." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I'm sorry about that. No, no, that'll definitely maybe they'll announce it before the end of the year, but maybe it'll be more like January. I don't know. Okay, perfect. It's always hard to know. I mean, like not only how long it takes for things to be ready and every all eyes to be dotted and t's to be crossed but then you know they like to get like maybe they don't want to bury it in the christmas stuff so you never know for sure well kelly thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us today it was a great pleasure to talk to you of course thanks so much for having me on it's always a good conversation i appreciate it absolutely well thank you so much and we'll make sure to have you back uh, sometime in the future and we'll talk about whatever that mystery project is <laughs> love to thank right. you thank you